it's good to see all of you this the first Sunday of the new year. If you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. My name's David. I'm the pastor. We hope you feel welcome, feel like a part of everything we have going on. We'd love to have you. Whatever we're doing today, we kind of start a new series. Whenever you get the new year coming on, you know, I always look in January. I kind of always want the series to get off to always a good start. The year off to a good start. But I really, in January, I always try to hit something that's kind of doctrinal, something that really deals with the heart and essence of God. Three years ago, in 21, after we came off COVID, I preached a series entitled The God Who Makes Sense of It All. Uh, two years ago, I just preached through Mark all the way through April, and so, you know, dealt with that a lot. Last year, I had a series entitled Collision, A Culture Colliding with God and How to Deal with That. Um, in today's series, you know, sometimes you, I find as I read through Scripture, phrases just pop out, pop out, pop out. And about a year ago, this phrase I was reading just kept popping out and popping out. And, uh, and I realized that needs to be a sermon series. And so as I, you know, when the time came to begin putting everything together for 24, I, I said, this is going to start it off. And that phrase I keep reading all the time is, but God, but God, but God, but God. I mean, you're going along and you're reading something about man and, and whatever we're doing. And then you say, but God. And every time you see that phrase, it's like, then God's doing something about it. And so, you know, we have this God who is holy and our holy God is complete uh, he's perfect unto himself. And over these next few weeks, I want to look at some aspects of this holy God that deals with us. Uh, they're connected to each other. They're connected to his holiness. So we're going to look at grace and power and, and mercy and love. And what I want you to get out of this series, what I really think is really important, is this. That it's amazing to know that even though we continually rebel against him, God is always doing something to bring us to him. Let me think about it. In our life, we rebel against God all the time. I don't care who you are. And yet God has always done this and always will keep doing this. He works to bring us to him. And today we're going to deal with his grace. And we're going to be in the book of Genesis, actually. And uh, the other, other messages will be on the New Testament. This was going to start off in, in Genesis. And the thing that I want you to see uh, from this sermon today is that even in our greatest rebellion... God shows us his grace. Even in the greatest rebellion of our life, God shows us his amazing, amazing grace. The passage we're going to be in is a kind of a difficult passage. We're going to be in, in the story of the flood of Noah. I found it interesting. I had several people coming up to me uh, just in the last few services saying, I just read through that passage. And I'm like, well, God, a lot of people are reading through that passage. And I realized it's the first of the year. A lot of you started with Genesis reading. So I might be where you are. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, whenever you deal with Noah and, and, and you got, the flood comes into picture, I know people, you know, some people are skeptical and people question about the flood and all that. Just understand that we, we know, I mean, outside of Scripture, we know that there's been catastrophic floods and some unbelievable floods that have covered the earth at times. Uh, we know that there are cultures, not just the Jewish culture, but other cultures who, that are ancient, that are old, who talk about a flood that, that happened uh, to their people. And so, you know, the flood is a real thing. And besides that, when you get to the New Testament, you, guys, you got Peter over there, you got Jude, you got the guy who wrote Hebrews. They all attest to Noah and who Noah is in his faith. And they all attest into the flood. And Jesus, ultimately, you got Jesus. And Jesus talks about Noah. And if he talks about Noah, he talks about the flood. So I'm just going to tell you, wherever you are, you need to understand that Jesus, Jesus was with Noah. You know, he, he, he was 100% with him, the story of Noah. To understand some of these events that we're going to talk about, you, you've got to understand the book of Genesis in its totality. You really do, how it fits. 
And Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He tells the story of God's people, how God used this group of people, uh, and he delivered them. And ultimately, it sets up the story of all our salvation, because through them, Jesus comes. And the key to all this is this guy, Abraham. And you get to Genesis 12, there's Abraham. But if you're going to understand why is there an Abraham, you've got to understand what happened before him. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis just sets up the sin and depravity of mankind. And we're told that God created us in his image to have a relationship with him. That's why he made us. He made us so you and I could have a relationship with us, he, him. He didn't make us because he was lonely. He didn't make us because he needs someone to love. Parents, don't teach your kids that. Don't teach your kids, oh, God was lonely. He needed someone to love. No, because you're going to confuse them. Then they're going to come to me, and I'm going to tell them, well, your parents are wrong. And then they're going to think, well, I wonder what else they were wrong about. And I'm going to say, probably everything, you know. But stay, I wouldn't trust them about anything at that point. Just you need to trust someone else. So don't teach them that. God created us to have a relationship with him. It's an amazing thing to think about. But we, in having that relationship, he gave us freedom. If you can't have a relationship without the freedom not to have a relationship, that's called kidnapping, and that's not what happens in life, you know? So God gave us the freedom not to have, and we took advantage of that, and we rebelled, and we sinned, and you see that in Genesis 3. Then you come to Genesis 4, and you got the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and then what do you have? You begin to see some of the descendants of Cain, and you see the sinfulness of some of these people. At the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, you see that Seth comes into the picture. Now, Adam and Eve had lots and lots and lots and lots of kids. Got to have lots of kids to multiply the earth that many times over. So Seth, though, is an important one. In chapter 5, we see the line of Seth, and we see some really righteous, godly people there. Now, that's important to know when you get to chapter 6, because chapter 6, verse 1 begins like this. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So there's this multiplying, they're getting married, having them. And you know, it says men multiplied and then I mean, women would come on the face and daughters, you know, it, it, understand that so far really Genesis has been about genealogy of men. So it's reminding us that there's a certain poet, poetry in it, certain balance symmetry that daughters came and that it began to fulfill. What did God say? Be fruitful and multiply. That's what they were doing. They were multiplying all over the place. Verse 2 tells us this. This is a fun verse. <laughs> then the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And so really what it's just saying is that people got married. Men and women got married. And, you know, in some degree, it would have been simpler if Moses just said men and women got married. But he uses the phrase sons of God and daughters of men, and there's a reason for it, and we need to figure that out because it sets up what comes next. Now, the word son and the word daughter just means male, female offspring. And the idea of son of God has different connotations. Now, some people think, and, and some of you probably believe this, and this is what you still believe when you walk out of here today. I'm, we're fine. It doesn't bother me. But some believe that these are angels, that the sons of God mean that the angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and lusted after them and then took them as wives. Now, and that's what some believe, and that impacts in what you see later on in chapter 4 and verse 4 and beyond. And part of the reason they get that is there are places in the Old Testament where the angels are called the sons of God. Now, understand that whenever you come to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and if you're translating from a Greek or Hebrew language into English, you always need to keep this in mind. And when you're interpreting what passages mean, one of the things you have to understand is context. Context determines everything. Context matters. We know that. We know when someone takes our words out of context, it changes the meaning. 
So context always matters. For instance, in Job, angels are called the sons of God. Well, contextually, that makes sense. It's pretty obvious. That's what's implied, and that's what's discussed, and it makes sense that way. And some people think because in places like that, it means that angels came, you know, they, they took wives from the humans, and they had this offspring, and they were wicked and sinful. But if you think about it for a moment, to me, that seems kind of bizarre. That seems almost mythological, that you're dealing with Greco-Roman mythology and things like that. Plus, if you think about what something Jesus said, remember last week when I preached that message, love God with everything you have. You know, love that, that My goal this year is to love God more than anything. Some of you probably were here and remember that. Some of you are probably here and completely forgot it, but that's okay. But in that passage, we, Mark 12 and also comes to Matthew 22, the Sadducees came to trap Jesus. And in trying to trap Jesus, they said, hey, you know, a woman had married this guy. He died. He had a bunch of brothers. She married all seven. They all died. Whose wife will she be in heaven? And remember, Jesus says, you're a bunch of morons. I roughly, that's, he didn't use the exact phrase. I'm roughly paraphrasing that a little bit. But he says, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. He says, there's no marriage in heaven. We're not going to be marrying. None of that's going on. He said, we're going to be like the angels because the angels are incapable of marrying. And all the stuff that goes with marriage, don't know what that is. Look to the person next to you and they'll tell you after the service. They can't do all that. They're not capable. And then you look and you think about when God created us in his image, male and female. He made us distinct from all the other aspects of his creation. We're different. So the idea that this different species of creation, which is what angels are, could somehow procreate with humans is beyond the scope of what scripture seems to say. So there's another explanation, and it's connected to what I've already told you, that there were some who worshiped God and some who didn't. Some of them think it's the, you know, the, the sons of God or the line of Seth and the daughters of men, the line of Cain. Maybe, maybe not, but here's what it is, that people who were godly and righteous and worshiped God married people that were ungodly, unrighteous, and didn't worship God, and it corrupted and polluted the whole thing. Now, if you don't think that's so, let me remind you that in the book of Joshua, God tells Joshua, when the Israelites go in the land of Cana, don't let them marry the people, they'll corrupt them. When you come to the book of Judges, you know what happened? You can probably figure it out. The Israelites married the Canaanites, he corrupted them, they were wicked and sinful. So we see that happening. That makes more sense to the context of what's about to happen. Verse 3 tells us this, the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. In other words, it's not going to contend. I ain't putting up with people forever. That's what he's saying. Because he also is flesh. In other words, he's human. He's flesh. He's mortal. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120. So I'm not putting up with these people for long. The days of their life will be 120. Now, some people think that means 120 years is the lifespan of humans back then because it was going into, you know, the eight, nine hundreds. Maybe it's also possible it means I'm going to put up with humans about 120 more years, then we're going to do this whole flood thing, and it's going to change. And that's the amount of time Noah had to do his ark. Verse 4 says this, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children. And those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Some think the Nephilim were giants. If you have angels marrying humans, then you have giants and all that stuff. 
But the, really, that word Nephilim simply means the idea of a fiery one, a mighty one, and, and probably just means great warrior. In fact, the, the rest of verse 4 says who these guys were, great men of renown. They were men of old. I mean, you know, you think about it, what happens. Men rebel against God and what enters into the world. Selfishness, greed, war. And you read all throughout, you can read in the Old Testament, great men who fought and great men who were warriors and mighty guys. And you read all of that stuff. And so most likely it means when, when you think about human history as they thought about it and the information they had, these are the guys, the great warriors, the great conquerors of the lands of that time they lived in. We see that happening. We see the book of Judges, you got Samson. Samson's almost a bigger than life guy, you know. Samson, he took the jawbone of a donkey, killed a hundred, killed a thousand Philistines. Unbelievable guy till a woman brought him down. That's always the case. Always the case. Guy's doing great. Woman down. Right there she goes. Every time. You think about David in 2 Samuel, talking about the mighty men of David, the 30 mighty men, one how they killed all these guys, they did all these great things. We love those exploits. That's kind of what you see here. So what you have is this. You have Godly people, over time, marrying the ungodly, completely corrupting and polluting humanity so that humanity becomes completely wicked and completely sinful. Rebellion against God. And we know that's true from what we see in verse 5 through 8. And here we see several things about God. Verse 5, what we see is God saw something, and here's what God saw. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all of the time. God saw man. And what he saw was wickedness. The word wickedness speaks of the absolute depravity, of moral depravity. It was great. It was beyond imagination. Whatever God wanted, it was the opposite of that completely. The result of that was the intent of us, of humans, the intent, the schemes, the desires, whatever we were thinking of that comes from the thoughts of our heart. The heart is not just the emotion, but the place of the will. So whatever we came up with, whatever we thought of, whatever we devised, all it was, only evil, nothing but evil, and it was that way all of the time. That's a sign of complete and total depravity. In every possible way, humanity had become utterly sinful in rebellion against God. God saw this. So he saw something, then God felt something. And here's what we see in verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. He was sorry and he grieved. Now, let me just remind you, help you understand this. That God is a holy God. And because he's holy and separate and complete, we have a hard time understanding God. We can't know anything about God at all ever unless God chooses to reveal certain things to us. And when God reveals to us, he has to accommodate himself to our limitations. He's not limited, but we are. And the limitations of language. Language is a great thing. It's how we communicate. But it has limitations. And part of the limitations is how we understand God. There's only so much we can do. But God condescends to that. And he helps us relate to him. So we use this word like sorry and grief so that we can connect with him. So he was grieved. He regretted. It hurt him in his heart. And he was sorry. The word sorry has the idea of repenting or changing. And it bothers us to think that God repents. But understand, his repentance, his sorry is different than ours. When we repent because of our sin, it's a moral decision that we're morally corrupt. There's a moral repentance. When God is sorry or repents because of our sin, it's not moral, it's intellectual. It has to do with the logic, the reasoning of God. He sees the sinfulness. We took our freedom and abused it. And God regrets that. You know, we might say, then why did God even create us? Why did he even bother to do all that? Which is a kind of nihilistic approach to life. Remember, God created us to have a relationship with him, and some did. 
Some of those people in those first few chapters, like Enoch, had relationships with God. For God not to create at all because mankind will rebel means that those who would serve him would be deprived of a relationship with him. Noah would have a relationship with God. After Noah, humanity would come back to life and be reborn and everything would go back and there'd be Abraham, Abraham in relationship with God, ultimately leading to Jesus, ultimately leading to you and I being here. God knew that one day you and I would sit in here worshiping and honoring him and feel the benefits of a relationship with him if you have one with him. So for God to never create humanity because of the depravity of humanity would be to violate his will and to deny us the opportunity to have what he always wanted us to have, which is a relationship with him. So God saw, God felt. Second thing, third thing is God intended. Verse 7 says this, the Lord said, I'll blot out man who I've created from the face of the land. I'm going to wipe him out. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, I am sorry that I have made them. He's He's going to bring judgment on humanity. And by extension, all of creation. When we sin, our sin affects all of creation. When we sin, it affects other people, other cultures. When we sin, it doesn't just affect us. God saw, God felt, God intended, but God also showed in verse 8. It's an amazing verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the series is called, But God. This says, But Noah. But there'll be a but God coming in just a minute. But Noah found favor. When you find, find something, it's like it's not yours. Like if I was walking down the street and there was a $20 bill and I found that, it wasn't mine before. It's mine now. I'm keeping that thing. But, you know, I found it. It's something I didn't have. Now, sometimes we use the word found like, you know, something we had we didn't know we had. But if I go into my office and I open up my wallet and I find the $20 bill, I'm not going to say, well, oh, man, I found a $20 bill. That was always there. I've noticed this in my life. No one has ever put a $20 bill in my wallet ever. There was never a time that my wallet didn't have money and someone put money in it. Now, because I had a wife and I have a daughter, there have been times that my wallet had money and then I go in and it doesn't have money. That happens. It happens a lot. It's just, you know, just don't put much money in there. You don't have to, don't look at your wife. Some of you looked at your wife. I cannot believe you did that. Now I got to have a whole new series about that, you know. Noah didn't have something. He didn't have the favor of God. The word favor simply means grace. It means grace. It means that which is not deserved. Noah found it in the eyes of God. Now, all of mankind was sinful, including Noah. Noah was a sinner. Absolutely was a sinner. Verse chapter, I mean, chapter 8, we'll see he's a sinner. And, you know, we won't see it, but you can read it and you can see that. But, but still, God saw something in Noah, just like God saw something in Abraham. Think about Paul in the New Testament. Paul persecuting Christians. I mean, he's killing them. And Jesus said, hey, I can use that guy, Paul. I can use him to change the world. You and I are sinners. There are things in our life that God may see that he can use us. And that's exactly what happened. God saw Abraham. And then for him, God saw Noah. So I can use Noah. And so he put Noah in that boat. And the whole time Noah's building that boat, people have a chance to come to faith in God. They don't. The New Testament says he was a prophet. People could have come. They didn't come. Noah's just building that boat, man. He's building that boat, building that boat 120 years. God's for 120 years giving people a chance. He's always giving people a chance. And the rains came. Noah got in that boat. And as soon as the rains came and it started flooding, all of a sudden people decided, hey, I want to get in that boat. It's too late to get in that boat then. It was just Noah. And so it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And chapter 7 says he's 150 days in that boat just floating around all that water. Can you imagine that? There's, no, there's, there's nobody there but family. All you got is family. Some of you just came out of Christmas. You couldn't spend a week with your family. Can you imagine spending all that time in a boat? There's Noah. There's Mrs. Noah. You know, at times Mrs. Noah was upset. 
There's only so many places you can go in a boat. I don't care how big a boat it is. She's got nothing but time. She's going to find you, man. You got your sons. You got their wives. There's just Noah. And there's nobody else. And he knows it's them. And there's a boat. There's no land. You can't see any trees, any mountains, any beach. Just water. And sometimes it probably seems like God's not there. Because I understand sometimes you feel like you're in a boat. All by yourself. And God ain't there. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this, but God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. The waters were judgment, and that wind, that spirit came, the wind came, and that was, that was God's grace. He blew away, but God, God remembered. You know, God remembers us. I don't care where you are in your life and how hard life is, God remembers you. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter how lonely you feel. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you feel like you're in that boat and you're all by yourself and nobody gives a rip about your life. God always remembers you. He'll always remember you. He'll always remember you. Humanity had totally rejected God and totally deserved judgment. But God decided to act in his grace. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is a really cool thing. We love grace. We love that. Everybody loves grace. You know, the favorite song, you know, of people who aren't in the church, though, about church is Amazing Grace. I think that's going to be our invitation. We'll sing Amazing Grace. We'll sing it in the first. And everybody knows, everybody knows Amazing Grace because on TV and, fun- and wedding and uh, movies, anytime there's a funeral or a wedding, I think that this, I've got them confused for a moment there because sometimes it's the same. But <laughs> I'm kidding. I know this, don't, Leo, just don't listen to that part. Sorry, son. I know you're getting married soon. Like in two weeks. Then you'll understand. But here's the thing. They always play Amazing Grace. You know, everybody knows the words because we love the idea of grace. And, and people, people get grace. You can go to people who don't know Jesus. They get grace. They figure grace out. It's just something about it. We talk about having a grace period. Man, they owe you money. Uh, there's a grace period. You've got a few days. We don't deserve it. They give it to us. Be gracious. Be kind. Be understanding. Grace is an amazing thing. Let me share with you three things about grace. It comes from this story, really. First of all, grace is costly. It cost God something. God had to put up with humanity for a while. He allowed centuries and centuries to go by. A man kept rebelling slowly, surely, moving away from God. And then Noah's building the boat. And man, people, are you going to get it? No, they keep rebelling against God. And it was costly for God to show grace. And you come to the New Testament, there's Jesus. How costly was it for God to give us our salvation? Jesus died on that cross in our place and on our behalf. And on that cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Sunday before Easter, I'm preaching from that passage in Matthew, I think. He said, God, why, why have you abandoned me? God, the Father, God, the Son, the, the Father abandoned the Son. You don't think it cost God to show us grace? It cost him dearly, but that's how much he cares for you and loves you. People talk all the time, I just want what I deserve. Man, don't ever say you want what you deserve. You don't want what you deserve in life. Man, I hear people say, I just want what I deserve. No, you don't. Understand this. Whatever you and I deserve in life, it ain't grace, man. It ain't grace. Grace 
It's when God gives us what we don't deserve. Grace is costly. Grace is something else. Grace is sufficient. Grace is what you need. It's what exactly what Noah needed. It was grace. You found that, you know? You go to Paul. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about all he's going through, man. All he's suffering. And he just talks about this thorn in the flesh and thorn in the flesh and thorn in the flesh. And he's saying, God, man, just, just take it away. Jesus, take it away from me. Take it away. I'll be so much more effective. I'll be so much more useful if you'll just take it away. Take it away. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, here's what it says. God tells, tells Paul this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I'm going to talk about power next week. My power, he said, is perfected when you are weak. My grace is all you need. Sometimes I know life is hard for you, man. I get it. You come out of 2023 and everyone says 2024 will be better. It ain't going to be better for you. You know it. Not right away. When that clock turned over Sunday night into Monday, it didn't get better. It just didn't. And sometimes you feel like, man... It is as bad as it's ever been. I want you to know there's grace. And somehow through all of that, and I don't always know how it happens, but grace will be sufficient. And I know that because I've lived that in my life. I've lived a long time, not that long, but long enough. And and grace is always what's sufficient for everything. You see, you don't deserve grace, and you don't need anything but grace. You don't deserve it, but man, there's nothing you need more than that grace to get you through life. Grace is costly. Grace is sufficient. And grace always wins. It always wins. Flood came, Noah in that boat. There came a time there was no more water and that boat landed. Noah got off that boat. And man, it just rock and rolled right on. And life came. And you get to Abraham, and you get to Jesus, and you get to us. Because grace wins. It looked like sin was going to win. And it looked like God was going to wipe out all of humanity. And the sinfulness of our lives would completely be victorious. Except for there was this thing God had called grace. And you go on the cross, and there's Jesus dying for our sins. And it looks like sin wins and will defeat. And right before he breathed his last, Jesus cried out, it's finished. It's called a cry of victory. Man, I did it all. There's nothing left to be done. And he dies and they put him in a tomb. And three days later, grace wins. Grace always wins. Think about your life. Even in your best day, you're arrogant, you're angry, you're bitter, you're immoral, you're a gossip, selfish, you're greedy. On your best day, in grace, man, it defeats all of that. Think about where you are in your life. Some of you are sick, you're so sick. Some of you are heartbroken. Your family is crushed. You're lonely. You're depressed. And you're facing so many problems in life. I want you to know that grace will win. 
It will always win. Always wins out. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, For by grace are you saved through faith. None of yourselves is the gift of God. You're saved by grace through faith. You didn't do anything. God does it. And grace is victorious. And here's the cool thing that I want you to know. No matter how bad your life gets, and how much life may suck, and how sinful you may feel and guilty you may feel, get this, grace defeats sin and all it brings. Grace will defeat sin in everything sin brings. So here's the thing I want you to see. That for the follower of Jesus, grace is experienced every day. From before salvation all the way to heaven. Before you're ever saved, grace is working in your life. God is giving you grace and faith. From the moment you're saved, the moment you exercise that faith and you receive the grace that God has and you experience it in its totality, from the moment that happens, grace still works in your life all the way to heaven. It never ends. It never ends. And so, as I said, when I started this message, even in our greatest sin, God shows us grace. And that grace is here today for you. You don't deserve it, no. Oh, but you need it. And it'll bring you the victory of your life. It'll bring you to Jesus. It'll bring you forgiveness. It'll bring you salvation. So just trust Jesus. That's all you need to do. And experience the grace that God gives. Experience the forgiveness of sin. And forgiveness to life that he has for you. I'm going to stand here in a minute. And there'll be other people. And if you want to come and talk to one of us. And maybe give your life to Christ, you can. If maybe you want to pray about some sin in your life, you can. We're going to join our church. Well, I don't know. Whatever, whatever you want to do. Just know this. You can walk out of here today with grace. Oh, Father, man, sometimes life's hard. And it's hard because we make it that way. Because of our sin and our failure and our rebellion. And God, we all know what it is in our life that keeps us falling so short all the time. And man, you're a holy God who loves us. And you deal with us in grace. So, Father, I pray right now today that we'll all experience the grace that you have. The grace that changes lives. The grace that makes us whole. Grace that gives us victory. Let it be the grace we walk out of here today with. In Jesus' name. Would you stand?